Well, welcome to River City Church. Good to be with you guys again this morning. If you are new or visiting, just want to say welcome to you. Uh, my name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here at River City. Um, if you've uh, been with us at all this fall, we've been um, studying the books of First and Second Peter. And First and Second Peter are letters that are found in the New Testament, written by the Apostle Peter, uh, one of the twelve disciples of Jesus. And and uh, they're written by him to a group of Christians who are living um, in the Roman Empire, in a part of the Roman Empire kind of known as uh, around the area of modern-day Turkey. What was happening is that these Christians, they were, they were living as though they were exiles and foreigners, even though they were living in the place and in the, in the land that they were from. And they were citizens, uh, they were living as citizens of a different kingdom, citizens of a new kingdom, citizens of God's kingdom, and living as those who had been sent as God's ambassadors to their home in the Roman Empire. And the purpose of that was that so through their demonstration and through their declaration of the good news about the gospel, the good news about who Jesus was and all that he'd done on the cross for them in their place, that people might come to know and love and follow and serve and worship Jesus. And so what was happening is that this new allegiance that they had to, uh, to, an, to their ultimate king and to the ultimate um, country that they were a part of, God's kingdom, his people, it was changing their lives in real noticeable ways. And what was happening is that they're beginning to be marginalized and ostracized and even kind of mocked and pushed to the edges of, the, of their society and uh, by their employers and even by their families as well. One pastor puts it this way, he says, those who had known them before and enjoyed sinning with them prior to their conversion to Jesus, they considered their life change negatively. And they weren't pleased with this influence of Christianity that it was having on their friends because it was upsetting their own lives. Additionally, their allegiance to Jesus as their true king, it kind of flew in the face of everything that their society believed and everything that kind of was the functional basis of how their society worked. It was based on the worship of many, many gods. Chief among them was their emperor Nero, who claimed to be a god and demanded to be worshipped as a god. And it's not so much that the people, uh, that, that the people in the Roman Empire were deeply religious, or that they were deeply committed to any one of these certain gods. Rather, it was simply a part of the, of the culture that they were in. And so, when Christians would no longer engage in the parts of their society or in the parts of their culture that worshipped all of these other gods, they were ostracized, and they were pushed to the edges, and they were marginalized. Various professions were held together by trade guilds, kind of like unions today. That included meetings with various religious ceremonies or religious rites dedicated to various gods or goddesses. And so when Christians refused to participate in those aspects of their trade guilds, they were often considered unprofessional and they were likely demoted or terminated from jobs or passed over for promotions within their employers and in their workplaces, suffering financial loss for their commitment to Jesus. And furthermore, families were deeply held together by these religious traditions and by the just the worship and the celebrations and the festivals and the feasts that had everything to do with all the worship of these many gods and and so when christians would refuse to participate in these kinds of holiday events they were considered disrespectful to their families maybe like the readers of peter's letters you've experienced that kind of suffering 
being pushed to the margins of your family or your friends or, your, or, or feeling that way in the society at, at large. And it's because your allegiance to Jesus has not just changed what you think about. It's not just changed your beliefs, but it's changed your actions. It's changed your values. It's changed your priorities. It's changed you. And it's changing you in a way that people can see and the way that they experience it's into that context that Peter is writing our passage this morning. It's into that context that he's writing the whole letter of First and Second Peter. And Peter's assumption is that Christian living involves suffering for being a follower of Jesus and understanding that experience. He's writing to these Christians with a word of encouragement because they're experiencing it, but he's also writing them with a word of, of instruction on how to endure it, how to experience it, how to live in light of it well. As we study this morning... I don't want us to have a sense of guilt. Um, you should never leave church after hearing the gospel preached and feel guilty. That, that, that should never be the case. But I think this morning we might need a, a sense of godly conviction. Because I think if we're honest, many of us have never experienced that kind of suffering. And both the teaching of Peter and Jesus reveal that we, we probably should. It's not that we should desire to suffer for our faith. That's, that's not the goal. The Bible doesn't teach that you should want to do that. But if we've never met even the least bit of resistance to our faith, that should raise some red flags for us. As I prayed and as I studied this week, asking, just asking God just to give me wisdom about like how to teach this passage, like what, what, what he wanted to say to us through it. And I think the thing that God kept bringing up in my own heart uh, was not that I, I needed to hear how to endure suffering, but that I needed to be willing to do it in the first place. You see, I, I don't think it's just that we haven't had the experience of suffering for our faith. I think it's that we choose to actively avoid suffering for our faith. Myself included, I, I do that. And maybe it's we try really hard to live out our Christian values, but we're just too afraid to ever talk about why we do it. Or maybe it's that our lives just don't actually look that different from the world around us. But whatever the reason is, our actions always reveal what we functionally believe to be true. Our actions reveal the lies that we believe all the time. And I think God's word for us this morning is inviting us to examine our own lives in order to identify the lies that we're believing that are keeping us from being willing to demonstrate and keeping us from being willing to declare the good news about the gospel, even if it might bring about suffering. So we study God's word this morning, we're going to examine three lies that Peter highlights. Three lies that keep us from being willing to suffer for our faith in Jesus. Three lies that need to be uprooted and need to be replaced with the truth about the gospel. I'll just be honest with you. Man, God's word's been like really convicting on my own heart this week. But it's also been really good news. And so I trust that by God's grace, the same will be true for you guys as we study God's word this week. Let's pray. We'll dive into our passage and begin our study. God, thanks so much for your word. Thanks so much for you. God, thanks that uh, you love us, even though uh, we totally don't deserve it, and we absolutely have not earned it. God, and so we just come with grateful hearts, just longing that you might teach us from your word. God, we just ask that you'd help us to put ourselves under the authority of your word, that it might be just like helpful instruction for us, but that it also might be good news for us as well. God, I just ask that you'd just like help me to be like more reliant on your spirit than I am on my notes. And I just pray that 
just our time in your word would be good because it's filled with you speaking in and through me and in and to us. So we love you, God. Thanks that you loved us first. Amen. Amen. Well, let's read the passage this morning. We're in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you would be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. For if you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. And if you suffer, it shouldn't be as a murderer or a thief or any kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, don't be ashamed. But praise God that you bear his name. For it's time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who don't obey the gospel of God? And if it's hard for the righteous to be saved, then what will become of the ungodly and to the sinner? So then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Peter's words uh, in uh, our passage this morning, they address a, a number of the lies that we believe that keep us from being willing to take actions that might lead to suffering for our faith. And you may not struggle with all of the lies that Peter addresses here, but my guess is that every one of us struggles with at least one of them. And I just, I just really want to be clear. I just like really want to be overt and stress this. I know like church can be like this place where like you leave people make you feel guilty, but and my my hope as we as we study God's word this morning, is that God might just graciously convict our hearts of where he wants to renew and restore and change us, like in such a way that would like encourage you and challenge you, but in such a way that, would, that he would just like show you how the gospel just still needs to take root in your heart. That'd be good news to you, that you might long for the gospel to invade every part of who you are. So not guilt, right? But godly conviction that leads to new life in him. Three lies. One, we believe that suffering for being a Christian is not part of God's will and should just be avoided. If God loves us, then why would, why would he allow me to suffer? Even worse, why would God want us to suffer? But Peter confronts that lie in verse 12. He writes, don't be surprised at the fire ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. He says, don't, don't be surprised that you're suffering for your faith and for living out your allegiance to Jesus. Don't act like this is a strange thing. Suffering from being public about following Jesus is something that should be expected. And I can think of a lot of reasons, but two. One, Jesus said it would happen. In John chapter 15, he's literally talking to the disciples and he said, if they hated me, they'll hate you. They persecuted me, they will persecute you. Jesus promised that if we're following him and living for him, that that would happen. And secondly, Peter says that God uses suffering for him to test us, verse 12 says. When a jeweler or a blacksmith, when they want to refine the metal that they're working with, what do they do? They heat it up, right? They put it in the crucible and they heat it up. What happens is, is that as the metal is heated up, the, the impurities, they float to the top so that they can be skimmed off and they can be removed. And the jeweler doesn't heat up the metal to punish it. He doesn't heat up the metal because he's trying to show the metal who's the boss. In fact, the very reason the jeweler heats up the metal is because he values greatly the metal. And he knows he wants it to be what it, he knows what it can be, and he wants it to be that. 
See, this, the same is true of God. God uses suffering for him in our lives to test us in order to refine us. The words that's translated there, a fiery trial. Um, I think a lot of times when we think about fiery trial, we think about like just like a city ablaze and stuff burning to the ground. But the word that's translated there refers not to the, a destructive fire, but it refers to a refining or a purifying kind of fire. See, the question that you and I are faced with every single day is who or what is worthy of my worship? Who or what will I give my life to? And God's faithful to test us so that we can sort out the answer to that question. See, testing is for our good. It helps us to identify the things in us, helps us to identify the impurities in us that we wouldn't otherwise see unless there was the heat of those flames. One pastor puts it this way, the fire reveals our true allegiances. You see, suffering reveals the things that we worship other than God, and we say, God, I, I trust you, I want to live for you, but when living like Jesus or speaking about him might cost you the approval of others, your allegiance is tested. When valuing what Jesus values might cost you the promotion that you really want, and your allegiance is tested. When waiting to have sex until you're married might cost you the boyfriend or the girlfriend that you finally found that you thought might never, ever come, your allegiance is tested. When giving generously might cost you the house or the car or the thing that you really want right now, your allegiance is tested. The question is, what do our actions reveal about the person or the thing that we functionally believe is worthy of our worship? You see, God gives us opportunities to suffer for him, to be treated unjustly, to be looked down on for him so that we, he might refine us in that, so that he might show us the surpassing worth of being known in him, being found in him, being loved by him. He might show us the joy that comes in life in him that comes in absolutely nothing else. So Peter says, don't, don't run from suffering. Don't don't avoid it. Don't avoid living like Jesus. Don't avoid speaking about him. Don't avoid that. So you, don't, don't stop doing those things so you might avoid suffering. He says, rejoice in suffering. Because why? Because one day Jesus is coming back. One day his glory revealed. 13 says, one day Jesus' glory revealed. One day every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And on that day, you will realize that everything you ever gave for him On that day, verse 13 says, you will be overjoyed. Your joy will be incredible. Why? Because in the midst of the suffering that you endured for Jesus' name, you began to experience the surpassing worth of knowing him. You began to experience that it was worth it to live for him instead of living for anything else. On, on that day when Jesus' glory is revealed in a way that is undeniable, your joy will be incredible because what you ex began to experience in part, you'll then experience in full. One pastor I listened to this week, he described how this is a lot like pregnancy. And um, I, I know a lot about pregnancy. I don't, I don't really know that much. I, I'm just a dude, right? But my wife has been pregnant and she's kind of told me about it, right? And what I know, at least about our pregnancies, is that they weren't just like this wonderful experience. Like some people, I think, walk around with like a glow about them. That's not how it was, right, in, in, in our situations. That's not a negative thing, dear. But I know Hannah's, Hannah's pregnancy was full of lots of morning sickness, 
It was full of puking, even on our vacation. It was full of tiny feet jabbing her in the kidney in the middle of the night. It was full of tiny, adorable little tushies sitting directly on her bladder all the time for nine months. And it's not like delivery is a walk in the park either. And if, it, if that's what it feels like for ladies, just imagine what it feels like for the guys, right? That was a joke. It's, it's, not, a, it's, not, it's not a problem thing. That was a joke. I need to work on my jokes, apparently. There's not a lot of joy in the suffering of pregnancy, right? Nobody's puking their guts out every morning thinking, I love this. I hope this stays around forever. I can't, I just hope this is always like this. I just love it so much. No, you want that to end. You want that to be over. You want that to be done with. But even though you want that part to be over, being pregnant is still a joyful thing. Why? Because being pregnant means that there is coming in a day when you won't be pregnant anymore. Instead, you'll actually be a parent. That tiny human you've been holding on to and caring and longing to meet will finally pop out and will finally say hello. And on that day, there will be lots of rejoicing. On that day, your joy, it will be incredible. And so you're able to look at the suffering that, that is pregnancy and that is those months. And you're able to know that it's worth it. And you're able to know that even in the midst of that, there's an incredible joy that's waiting for you. And so what you experience in part knowing that joy, you would get to experience in full when you get to meet and hold your baby. That's what Peter is saying. He's saying, rejoice in the midst of your suffering. Rejoice even though you're pregnant now. Rejoice even though that you're suffering for your faith now because it's pointing to an even greater joy. It's pointing to the greater joy of getting to behold your baby. It's pointing to the greatest joy of all of getting to behold your Savior, the one who suffered for you, the one who died for you, the one who loved you and gave himself over for you. And so, as we suffer for our faith, as we endure being looked down on or being ostracized or being pushed to the edges or being marginalized in our society for having different values and different priorities, you know, it's worth it. It's worth it because it's worth it to treasure Jesus, to behold him, to give our lives for him. See, the gospel gives us an incredible hope and a purpose worth giving everything for. And so suffering for Jesus' sake, suffering in order to live for him, suffering in order to make much of him, it's not outside of God's will. In fact, it's part of God's will, and God uses it to refine us and, and to sh- so that we might experience like real joy as we show that we really believe that it's just him that worth, that's worth living for. Well, that's not the only lie that the gospel replaces. The second lie is that we believe that the opinions of people matter more than the opinions of God. And I know we never say this out loud, but our lives reveal that this is functionally what we believe all the time. It it especially gets revealed when what we do or what we don't do and what we say or what we don't say is determined by the opinions of other people instead of the opinion of God. The Bible has a term for that. It calls that the fear of man. Verse 14, Peter seeks to identify and uproot this lie at the same time while we're planning it with the truths of the gospel. He says, if you're insulted because of the name of Christ, then you're blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Like, it's just normal. Like, when you get insulted, like, you're not like, awesome, that's fantastic, love it. No, like, that's kind of a bad thing, right? You don't, no one likes that. No one does. 
But Peter says, if you're insulted, if you're maligned, if you're talked badly about, if you're looked down on, if you're passed over for promotions, if your family just thinks you're weird, it's not a bad thing, he says. In fact, it shows that you're blessed by God. That thinking doesn't make sense because we often think that blessing is is smooth sailing and no troubles in our lives. We think that blessing means being liked or accepted by people. But Peter reminds us here that true blessing is found in being identified with Jesus. True blessing is found in being loved and accepted by him. And if you're willing to suffer for his name, it shows that you're his. It shows that you have his spirit resting on you. And the word that used for resting there, it's, it's a word kind of like a covering. It's like a blanket that rests on you. When you're, when you're suffering for your faith, when you feel pushed to the edges, when you feel marginalized, when you feel on the outside, that feels lonely. It feels cold. Peter is saying, when you're experiencing that here, you need to remember that the God who saved you is the God who loves you, is the God who is keeping you, and he's covering you with his blanket of warmth. And his spirit rests on you. And it's good news for your heart that enables you to endure that feeling of being feeling alone. Knowing that while you might feel alone here, you are cherished and loved and kept by him. Peter reminds us that true blessing is about being found in Jesus. See, all too often we live our lives based on the fear of man, but the Bible calls us to live our lives based on the fear of God. See, the fear of man is caring most means caring most about what people think of you and letting their opinions determine your identity, what you think about who you are and and your choices. But the fear of God is caring most about what God thinks of you and letting his opinion determine your identity and determine the choices that you make. I'll just be honest with you. This is like the one that's hardest for me. It's so easy for me to like hang out with my friends that, that I want to know Jesus, that don't know him yet, and just never talk about him. To just not talk about what's going on in my faith or the things that I'm learning, not to talk about what's happening in our church or not to invite them to things or just invite them into relationship or invite them into spiritual conversations or invite them to come to small group or any of that stuff. And I, I think that happens for me a lot because I'm just way too concerned about what they think about me. And I don't want things to be awkward and I, I just want people to like me. I, I want them to respect me. I don't want them to think that I'm weird. And the reminder that Peter gives us in the gospel is that no matter how people respond to the ways that we demonstrate the gospel, no matter how people respond to the ways that we declare the good news about the gospel, Peter says that you're blessed. You're blessed not because of how people respond, but you're blessed because of who you are in. His opinion matters most. And his opinion of you is that he loves you. This leads us to our la- the last lie that we examine. Lie number three, we believe that faith is just a personal thing that should just be between me and God. Verse 16, Peter writes, If you suffer as a Christian, don't be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. When knights would uh, ride into battle, they would wear the, the crest of their king or their country, and it'd be on their armor, and it'd be on their sleeves, and it'd be on their flags, and... You always knew 
who a knight represented. You always knew who a, who a knight was fighting for. It was something that they were proud of. It was something that they raised high on flags and banners. It was something that they wanted you to know about. And Peter is saying the same should be true of us. We bear Jesus' name. We are Christians. Literally, that word means little Christ. In the early church, the name Christians was actually used as a derogatory term by outsiders to describe people who were followers of Jesus. It was used as an insult. You're just little Christ. You're just trying to be little Christ. But Christians began to own that name and began to use it for themselves because it revealed where their identity was found. And they wanted people to know where their identity was found, even if it was going to bring about suffering. Their identity was as being followers of Jesus. You see, for centuries in the Western world, being a Christian was a, a good thing. Um, ever since Emperor Constantine kind of made uh, Christianity the, the, the national um, religion of the Roman Empire all the way back, being a Christian has kind of been considered a good thing. But increasingly, in our modern day, and like it was for these early Christians, being known as a Christian is increasingly considered by our society not to be a good thing. And there's this temptation to hide that part of who we are because we don't want people to think badly of us. We don't want them to think differently of us because of it. But hiding a huge part of who we are isn't what God calls us to. I'm a dad, and you guys know that because, well, one, my children run around, but also uh, because you hear me tell stories about them all the time. I talk about them. I share my Facebook posts about them. Like, you guys know that I have kids and I talk about it all the time. They're a huge part of who I am. But imagine if I never talked about my kids and then one day I invited you guys over to my house and Emma and Caleb greeted you at the door. One, it would be absolutely adorable, right? But two, you'd be really surprised. You'd be like, that's really weird. That I don't know that he has kids. How did that happen? It would be really inconsistent. you think, why doesn't he ever talk about his kids? That like, seems like a big deal kind of thing that like, you would know about somebody. Why doesn't he ever talk about that? That seems like a huge part of his life. And See, the truth is that being a Christian is the single most in part, in part of our identity. It's absolutely central to who we are. It's not a side thing. It's not something that... And if it's not something that comes up in our relationships with people who don't know Jesus yet, that's a problem. Because it means we're choosing not to talk about it. It means that to some degree we're ashamed that we bear Christ's name. Now, don't hear me saying that we just need to be like obnoxious about our faith, right? Your car probably shouldn't be plastered with like a thousand Christian bumper stickers, right? Jesus should not be the only thing that you ever talk about, right? It's like, who's going to get drafted first in the NFL draft this year? Oh, it'll be Jesus for sure. He's the best, right? That's just weird, okay? That, like, it's just awkward and weird. That's not what we're called to. We're not called to, like, try to shove our beliefs or shove our thinking about Jesus down people's throats. And Peter says, in fact, that if you do that, don't be surprised if you suffer. And don't look for an attaboy from God if that's what happens. Look in verse 15. He says, don't suffer as a murderer. Like, don't obviously, right? Like, don't be a murderer. Don't, don't be a thief. Don't be a criminal. But he adds to the end of that lift, he says, he says or, or even as a meddler. A meddler, as one pastor writes, he says, meddler is someone who tries to get into the affairs of others in order to impose their agenda or authority or convictions onto someone else. That's not, that's not how Jesus calls us. That's not the, the, that's not the winsome witness that Jesus calls us to. 
That's not how Peter has spent the last two chapters outlining what our winsome witness should look like. No, instead our, our love for Jesus changes the way that we live in a way that should be curious to people, not offensive to people. And the goal is that that curious living might open doors for us to talk about the why behind the way that we live and what we do. And see, if Jesus is our true king, if he is our loving savior, if he is our really our friend, then like he should be somebody that we talk about. <laughs> he should be something that comes up regularly in our relationships with people because he's the most important part of who we are. We bear Jesus' name as Christians, our identity is found in him. The gospel says that that's not something to be ashamed of. That's something, not something to keep to yourself. It says that's the best news of all because you were dead enemies of God that in your death and in your rebellion against him, God made alive in Christ. We were people who had no hope, but who God in our hopelessness gave us an unshakable hope in Jesus. We were people that hated God, that were running from him, that were rebelling against him. And in the midst of our hating of him, God reached down and died for us that we might be in right relationship with him. That should be something we love talking about. Like that should be something that's like fun to talk about. We should love telling people about who God is and all that he's done because he longs to do it for them just as he did it for us. You see, we're all tempted to believe one or all of those lies. We're tempted to believe that suffering for God isn't part of his will or that the opinions of people matter more than the opinions of God or that our faith is just something that we should keep to ourselves. It's just a private thing. And when we do that, it keeps us from demonstrating and it keeps us from declaring the good news about the gospel when it went lead to suffering. But, ah, but when the good news about the gospel actually takes root in our heart, it drives out those lies because what we remember is that suffering is God's gracious testing of us to refine us so that we might have true joy in him instead of in anything else. When you remember that the gospel reminds us that God's opinion of us, his judgment of us matters the most. And what his opinion of us, if we're in Christ, is, is that we are his beloved children who bear his name. And when the gospel begins to take root in our heart, it roots out those lies and it replaces it with those truths. And then as verse 19 says, then we'll be able to entrust ourselves to the faithful creator and do good. It seems like really dumb to keep doing the things that are getting you mocked. It seems really, like it seems like it doesn't make sense to keep doing the things that are like causing you suffering, that are causing you to be on the outsides of your friendships or um, to be kind of perceived awkwardly by your family. Like it seems like that seems like a terrible idea. It seems like a really bad idea if you're just living for here and now. But the gospel says that there is something much greater to live for than that. And that real, lasting, true joy is found in part here in living for the Lord, in full, in living with him in eternity. You see, throughout our passage this morning, Peter's been identifying and uprooting the lies that keep us from living for him and keep us from suffering for our faith even. And he's replacing those lies with the truth about the gospel. And the truth is that we might never experience suffering like these believers experienced. We might never experience suffering like many believers throughout, around the world, even, even in today. 
suffer for being identified as followers of Jesus. We're probably never going to get asked to lay down our, literally lay down our lives for our faith. But every day, every day we are invited into the fire of dying to ourselves so that we might live for Jesus no matter what it costs. Every day we are invited into that fire. So the question is, where do you need to die to yourself so that you might actually live for Jesus? What allegiances are you holding on to that get in the way that keep you from being willing to demonstrate the gospel and speak about it, even if it might bring you suffering? How does your resistance to being willing to even enter that suffering reveal the allegiances that you hold higher than Jesus? And where do the truths about the gospel of God's grace need to take hold in your heart so you might actually be able to like root out those lies and live in light of the truth? Maybe like I did this week, you are experiencing a healthy sense of God's conviction. Man, I, man, I have some friends that I've been praying for like in their lives for over a year, and I haven't had a meaningful spiritual conversation yet. That's on me. <laughs> That's because I'm too afraid to talk about it. But maybe like me this week, you are experiencing a healthy sense of God's conviction, but you also are experiencing the good news about God's hope. And if that's not the case yet, I just want to, just before we close, I just want to remind us about who's writing this letter to us. Who's, Who's writing this letter? One pastor I listened to this week reminded me about who was writing this letter, and I really needed to hear that. He said, who's writing this letter is Peter. Peter who, is the, Peter, who is the fearful failure. Peter was not willing to be public about his faith the night that Jesus was arrested. He denied Jesus three times. He denied even knowing him three times. In fact, Matthew 26 says that he denied Jesus with an oath, saying, I never knew him, and began to call down curses on himself, swearing that he didn't know Jesus. He was saying, let me be judged if it ever comes out that I actually knew him. And Jesus died for Peter's cowardly denial of him. And Jesus took the curses that Peter called down on himself so that the one who should never have been cursed took the curses so that the one who should have been cursed would go free. You see, if Jesus could forgive Peter for his cowardly denial, then he can forgive you and me for ours. And if Jesus could empower Peter to be an apostle and a pastor who helped plant and grow the early church, who he used to write, literally to write part of the Bible, then he can use you and me as well. You see, the gospel doesn't tell us to ignore our weaknesses or to just forget our failures or the ways that we don't live up to how God has called us to live. No, the gospel invites us to see our weaknesses and our failures as a reminder of how incredible Jesus is, of how good he is, of how powerful he is, about like how in control he is, and how gracious he is that he might use us. So if this week you you failed or you missed an opportunity in your neighborhood or in your family or in your workplace to talk about Jesus or to live like him, then the invitation that the gospel gives us is just to confess that. To confess to the Lord, say, God, like I, I, I chose to live in, 
based on the opinions of others rather than your opinion. And you get to rejoice in that because that fear doesn't condemn you. Jesus was already condemned in your place so that you would stand free as loved and accepted by him. And so what happens is that the gospel actually empowers you to live in light of that truth. It makes our witness even more powerful and it makes our joy even greater as we make much of the one who has saved us, even much of the one who used us in spite of our weaknesses, in spite of our failures. You see, and that's what, when we take communion, that's what we're remembering. We're remembering the good news about the gospel. We're remembering the person and the work of Jesus, what he accomplished for us on our behalf so that we might be used by him, but we might be made his people and a part of his kingdom. See, communion is a picture. It's a reminder for us about the gospel. The bread reminds us of Jesus' body, which was broken for us. And as he lived the life that we couldn't live and the life that we should have lived, and he, the drink reminds us of the blood that was shed for us by Jesus as he died the death that we deserved to die, that we should have died. And taking communion, it doesn't make you right with God. It doesn't save you. It doesn't change your status or your standing with him. The only thing that does that is by putting your faith and your hope Jesus as Lord, and putting your hope in him as the one who has saved you, who has taken away your guilt and given you his right standing with God. That's the only thing that changes your status and your standing with God. And instead, when we take communion, what we're doing is we're remembering that. We're remembering the good news about the gospel and all that Jesus did for us. And we're reminding ourselves about those truths which change us. Those truths root out the lies that we believe and they replace them with a boldness and a hope and a confidence in the Lord. And it changes the way that we live and what we do and what we say. So as we sing, as we worship this morning, the bread and the juice, they're in the back. Let's take the bread and you dip it in the juice. And as we sing, if you put your trust in Jesus, if he's your hope for right relationship with God, then whenever you're ready, go back and take communion. You don't need to be a member here. You just need to belong to Jesus. Let's pray. God, we are so grateful for you. We are so thankful for you and all that you've done for your good, the good news about the gospel. And God, we just long that you might make us your people, that you might give us new hearts and new lives, that you might, God, like empower us with the truths about the gospel that we might live for you. God, I just like really, I just pray against like any sense of guilt from this morning, or rather I pray that you might just like, just graciously give us a sense of godly conviction. You remind us about the truths of the gospel that root out the lies that we believe, the hope that we have, your love for us, even in the midst of our failures, even in the midst of our living for the opinions of others instead of your opinion. God, I pray that the gospel would be good news that renews and restores our hearts but it, and changes us in such a way that we might live boldly for you. God, help us to be willing to suffer for you. You're worth it in every way. We love you, Jesus. Thanks that you loved us first. Amen.